Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 603. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have Blue Sky today, so I don't know who we've got to thank for that, but thank you so much. It's been a little bit kind of hit and miss with the rain of late. Yes, indeedy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have one story, but oh man, story by Elad Harbour, which is called Number One Hit, and it's narrated by Jonathan Danz. Oh, user in for a treat today. Elad Harbour is originally from New York City, spent his college years in San Francisco and currently lives in Miami, Florida with his wife and daughter. He works in IT and tries to find time to write every day. He has recent publications in Strange Constellations and Truancy. This narration is by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan exists in a parallel dimension that looks suspiciously like West Virginia. When he's not trudging her over rock and root on his velocipede, he labours to hammer stories out of unruly words. With the help of his wife and daughter, he manages to keep track of his car keys and his priorities and his mind. Should you find yourself in the dusty corners of cyberspace, you may glimpse words and coffee and occasional respiratory of his thought mood found at and there's a little link there jondandans.com so the starship sova is very proud to present number one hit by elad haber the highway is paved with the bodies of musicians their bones crunch under the weight of our motorcycles a staccato of shattering and blistering bones every once in a while a cleft-shaped sigh or a note or two of some long ago number one hit the concentration of dead musicians is heavy here. Lots of bleached hair, clown makeup, sequins, fake diamonds glinting in the fading light, and tattered venue posters, colorful and forgotten. Not to us, we haven't forgotten. We're salvagers, musical pickers, historians with a good ear. The front bike slows and so do the other five, 
wheezy engines, and clattering brakes kicking up an ominous intro. Got something on the sensors, says Burr up at the front. He lets one meaty paw off his handles and grabs his sensor doohickey to show me, as if I could read the tiny screen from my bike, as if he already knows I'm not going to trust him. I don't hear nothing, I say. We all cut our engines, a song rudely interrupted mid-track, and listen. There's the wind, the tin of our bikes cooling down, and the far-off cry of a person or animal dying. Then I hear it, a guitar, just the faintest hint of twang, strings angling like a harp. I look back at my people, as silent as we can, we get off our bikes and grab our weapons. Burr, big beast of a man, points toward a collection of towers a few minutes' walk from the highway. We get into a loose, defensive formation and start towards it, two men staying behind with the bikes. On the side of the road, away from the clutter of the highway, is only gray rock. Trees are of the dying or on-the-floor variety. As we get closer to the towers, the clutter underfoot resumes with pieces of ancient equipment, keyboards and mics, splintered cabling and even some old telephones. We try to avoid making noise. We want it to be quiet, so we can hear if there's any. There it is again. The guitar, this time accompanied by a beat. Just a classic Casio preset, but it's enough to get our spirits up. We give each other genuine smiles before continuing forward, our guns out. Watch for lurkers, I warn, as we enter the area of shadows. The towers are really server racks, full of computers with crisscrossing, multicolored cables. Some are like large Some are large, like statues, other are half destroyed and leaning like Pisa. The equipment within are in varying stages of destruction. Once this collection of computers ran the world or hosted some banking software or porn website, all the rows full of blinking green lights. Those lights have been out for decades now. The domain names long forgotten jokes ending with a dot net or dot com. My crew stalks silent like through the debris. The music is steady now, as if someone settled on the right station in a sea of static. I can hear vocals, a whispery female voice, sadness in the inflection. Someone behind me releases a sharp intake of breath. It's Wiz, a long haired, long bearded, Long-legged dude who never shed a tear in his life. He looks away from me. Move! I shout into the wind. We all rush forward as if someone rang a dinner bell. Behind one of the towers, huddled together for warmth, a group of three teenagers in rags stand around the glow of a monitor. One tries to run. Wiz tackles him to the ground. It gets very noisy. One of the teenagers, a girl, starts crying. I'm shouting something about raising their hands. The one that tried to run is fighting back. Wiz is having fun, dodging punches and doing a little dance. That soft guitar music is still going on from near the screen, but I can't hear it. Just shoot him! I shout. Wiz shrugs, pulls out the smallest of his pistols, and shoots the kid in the face. A sudden return to silence. Louder somehow than the music. Thicker. I look over at my techie, Gina, short with pink pixie hair and spikes around her neck wrists and ankles. She pushes aside the teenagers and sits in front of the screen. She slides her finger across the screen a few times. What we got? Usual, she responds. Kids must have found the one live port in this fucking toilet. 
hacked in and found a cache of MP3s and a backup. How many? She looks at me with a slight grin. At least fifty... albums. Let me see. I scrunch down and watch the screen as she scrolls through. Lots of obscure trance shit from the twenties. Some heavy techno, some pop. I stand up. This is the first decent catch we've had in a while. I look around at the quiet world around us, the decaying towers, the electronic debris, the music coming from the screen and decades ago. We won't be alone for long. I look back at Gina. Do a database search. See if you can find anything else hidden away. Copy to a flash, then destroy the tower. Quick now. Boss. Burr, big and hairy and smelling like sweat, is standing behind me. We should go. We will. We can't be the only ones around. I turn to face him. He's tall and bulky, but so am I, with at least 100 pounds on him. I get up in his face. You got a problem? He takes a step back, shakes his head. No. He says, then looks over at the teenagers. What do you want to do with them hackers? I walk over to them while Gina is inserting a skull and bones flash drive into a port on the side of the screen. One girl, one boy. They could be siblings, maybe even twins. All these techies look the same. White skin with a greenish tint, black glasses, some form of patchy jeans jacket and black as soot jeans. My eyes linger on the girl. Her dark hair unwashed, skin full of pimples. She keeps her eyes on the ground, but I admire her tits under her tight white shirt rising and falling with her tension. I'm talking to Burr, but for their benefit. We probably should just off him here, save us some trouble. They scrim a little. The boy especially is thinking of some escape. My guys got pistols at the back of their heads, and they're looking like they ain't had no fun for a while. But this is a pretty nice stash of music they found on some pencil pusher's hard drive. Could fetch some serious cash, assuming there's an NOH in there somewhere. I take a deep breath, exhale like a god. We do owe him for that. Burr's getting antsy, I can tell. He wants blood, I suppose. I get down on my sizable haunches. They're afraid to make eye contact. I reach out to the girl who flinches at my touch, but I squeeze her chin just enough to get her to look at me. She's pretty for a vagabond. She's frightened, shaking, but in those green, bespectacled eyes, I see something lacking in my crew. Intelligence. I guess I'm feeling generous today. You kids need a job? There's the world outside, dead, quiet, sad if you're prone to thinking too much, and... Then there's the world inside, loud, crowded, smells like shit and piss, yet preferable to the silence above. We roll down the big dirt ramp into the underground city, my bike in the lead, destitutes crowding the road, carrying sacks of food or possibly family heirlooms. The masses scuttle aside for us, clutching their belongings and young girls. We set up the two hackers in a wagon side-hitched to my bike. They're holding each other tight and staring at everything with infant eyes. I call out to them. Never been down here before? They shake their heads. I assume they speak, but I still haven't heard a word. Whole life on the surface, huh? I laugh. <laughs> You're missing the party. At the bottom of the ramp, we round the corner onto the first flat street of the underground. The drumbeat is the first thing I hear. It seems to be coming from all directions, syncopated to the rhythm of the city. The beats are ever-present. Boom. 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 Pedestrians, most covered in a brown dirt, shuffle from one open doorway to another. 
hand-painted signs like grocer or weapons hang over every other doorway. Ladies in windows open their shutters and then close them again. The couple argues in hushed tones, their arm movements like a dance. The sound of our bikes, so clear in the desert above, is lost in the din of everything around us. We ride slowly, our engines barely a whisper, toward the center of the city. This is all housing, I say, feeling the need to educate. I motion to the one or two-story mud-brick buildings. Not much to look at, but these structures can hold dozens of people. They sleep twenty or thirty to a room. Smells bad, but it's safe. As we get closer, the streets get thinner and the sounds more erratic. No longer the steady beating heart of a city, but instead the occasional shriek or heavy breathing, a window slammed close or a muffled scream of a baby or a dog. We're getting close to the hub now. I can see it through the break in the small buildings. The tallest structure in this quote-unquote city. A piecemeal hovel that somehow stretches five or six stories high, made of a latticework pattern of different building materials. The center of all roads and commerce in this place. We don't go any closer than we need to. I slow down in front of a small building. Some walls actual brick, most just ash-colored clay. Above the door, a printed sign in a flowery font reads, Wanderers. The place brings a white smile to my black heart. Inside, it's straight out of a make-believe fantasy and big wooden bar at the back with animal heads hanging from the rafters. Tables full of gruff-looking son-of-a-bitches huddled over steel pitchers, planning and gossiping. Gina goes straight to the barkeep to make arrangements. Some of my guys see long-lost friends and disappear into the corners. Burr and the kids stay with me near the entrance. The eyes of the patrons are on me. I let them soak me in for a while. Finally, I move towards a nearby table. Two sad sacks are sharing a single ale. I wait, wordlessly, until they scuffle away and I move in to claim a seat at the table. It's a good table, with a view of the front door and the bar. I nod at the two hackers and they sit down across from me. Burr, full of nervous energy, is still standing behind me. Boss, he says. I ignore him. Boss, he says again loud. It's been too long, boss. Fine, I say, throwing a hand up. Have fun. He walks over to the other side of the table and whispers something to the hacker girl. Then he pulls one of his huge arms around her chest and lifts her up. She tries to struggle, her ninety-ish pounds against Burr's two hundred plus and fails very quickly. She looks at me for help. Calm down, baby, I tell her with a wink. You may enjoy it. The boy moves to stand up. I stare at him. Sit down. He does as Burr throws the girl over his shoulder and walks towards the back of the bar upstairs to the rooms. Don't worry, I tell the kid. He's not going to hurt her. I can't help but smile. Well, not that much. Gina comes to the table carrying some drinks. Arrangements made, boss, she says. We got the whole top floor. Perfect, I say, grabbing for one of the steel mugs. At the top is a brown foam. Good sign. I take a long, deep drink, finishing at least half of the cup. It's good beer. Fresh. Gina grins and walks away. The kid is staring at me, his eyes like fire. Don't be such a fucking prude, I tell him, finishing my first drink. I reach for another. She your girlfriend? No. No, he says. So what's the problem? He doesn't have an answer. 
I smile, buzzing. I ask him, You have a name, or should I make one up for you? Tim. He deadpans. I laugh and tighten an imaginary necktie. Tim. Serious name for a serious guy. How old are you, Timmy? Seventeen. A little bit of compassion fills me. Ah, born post-crash. You have no idea about what the world used to be like. I've seen pictures. <laughs> I'm sure you have. I look away at the sad faces of the other people in this place. You have no idea what we've lost. Inspired, I reach into my jacket, into one of the many crudely stitched inner pockets, and pull out a worn paperback. Its pages are yellow with age. The cover is secured with scotch tape. It's an English-language version of 100 Years of Solitude. Do you see this book? I ask the kid. Do you know how many people all over the world have read this book? Could you even imagine a number so high? Millions of people, in hundreds of languages, all across this planet have read this book. There will never be another book like this ever again. It's like the music we salvage. It's special because it's a kind of extinct species. But, says Timmy, suddenly brave, people can still write. People can still make music. Yes, but no one does. Not for a long time. Later, I stumble my way up the creaky wooden stairs to the top of the floor. It's late, and I'm vaguely aware that I may be waking up the building with my drunken footsteps, but I don't really care. Up at the top floor, in the shadows at the end of the hall, Wiz stands up, nods to me. He's on watch, making sure no thieves come by our rooms, but his cheeks are red and his eyes a bit more cloudy than usual. He's been drinking. I should be upset, but I'm not. I walk to the only room with an open door. My bags, a half a dozen tattered shells that usually hang on my bike, are set up carefully on the desk. I rummage through them, through yellow newspapers and bullet casings and tar-smelling clothes, until I find an ancient cassette player. It's just a black box, scratched up like crazy, but it means everything to me. I rummage again, this time pulling out small in-ear headphones that were once white, now dirty beige. I go into my bags again, shoving my hands in the stickiest corners of the bags until I pull out two small cylinders. I push open a slot on the back of the player with my thumb and insert the batteries into the player one at a time. Exhausted by the search, I fall into a tired structure this place calls a bed. It seems to be made of straw and wood, but it's more comfortable than bare rock which I know from painful experience. I clutch the box in my hand. Slowly I reach into my jacket and grab a scratched-up cassette, a souvenir from one of my first raids, and place it carefully into the player. I put the headphones in my ears and close my eyes. Music fills my world. I feel like I can touch it. The next day, and my head hurts like a bitch, I drink two cups of coffee downstairs before going back up to fetch my gear. By nightfall, we'll be out of this town and onto the next one. That's always the plan. My guys get their bikes loaded up and ready in an alley beside the Wanderer's Inn. Timmy and the hacker girl stay close together. She looks tired. Gina, Wiz, and Burr surround me as I load up my bike. They're full of questions. Who's going? Who you taking? Can I come, boss? See, the hub is like an exclusive club from back when society was segmented by class. Only certain people can enter the hub and they can bring only one or two guests. Keeps the riffraff out and the goings-on behind the doors a mystery, 
to the normal people. Every underground city has a hub, and they're all connected through what's left of the world's internet. The last part is kind of a secret. Most people think the internet's been dead since the crash. People better off that way, in my opinion. I've taken each of my top three to different hubs throughout our journeys, but I'm still feeling generous. I silence the three of them with a look and say, I'm taking the newbies. What? They shout as one and follow up with some choice expletives about me and my mother and something about a dog. I smile at them and walk over to the kids. Timmy, I say. He straightens up and looks at me with those small, frightened eyes. The girl, whose name I learn is Emma, looks at the floor. You and the girl are with me. They share an infectious smile. Good, I say, slapping my hand on a nearby wall. This'll be fun. They follow me back to my bike. I feel the need to educate these two to spread my hard-earned knowledge on non-knuckleheads, like my usual crew. They position themselves into the cab and I jump on my bike, revving the engine to get it going. The hub casts no shadow in this subterranean world, but I can feel its pull from here. On the short ride over, I'm quiet. My sudden need to pontificate is replaced by the danger and dread of our destination. The guards at the gate raise their hands in greeting. They're wearing helmets with dark visors that obscure their features. They've each got pistols on their hips, and the two guards nearest the door look to be carrying pulse rifles. Business, inquires the nearest guard. Business, inquires the nearest guard. Music, I reply in the typical short clip of these situations. Cred, he commands while the other guards hold their hands near their pistols. I pull out a small, lacquered card, bequeathed to me by a dead former colleague. It still smells faintly of blood and gas. And show it to the guard. He nods and his minions relax. Off, Mr. One Word in tones. I shut down the bike and nod at the kids to step out of the cab. The guards move in closer, some raising their guns up at us, the others with old-fashioned metal detectors. At every beep, Mr. One Word reaches into my clothes and pulls out a gun or a knife. One hand comes very close to the crack of my ass. Careful there, buddy. Nothing goes in there. I smirk at him and then look over at the kids. The guards are patting them down and they look disappointed when they don't find anything. Mr. One Word appears to be tired of us and breaks his usual routine to spit out a sentence. You'll get all your weapons back when your business is concluded. The doors start to open with a loud, crunching, squealing sound. One word continues his screed about decorum and business practices while in the hub, but I stop listening. I rev the engines and pull forward into the hub. The first room is a garage slash antechamber. There's small clusters of people huddled around cheap tables. Motorcycles and small cars line the walls. I pull into an empty space and nod at the kids to get out. Stay close, I tell them. Near the elevators, there's boards filled with chalk scribblings. Only some of it makes sense to me. Certain acronyms highlighted in my mind's eye. Small pond of sanity in an insane display. There's five elevator banks, but each one only goes to certain floors. By following the lines of chalk from the letters N-O-H to a floor number, I see we need to go to the fourth floor, second section. I stare at the Roman numerals over the elevators. Emma brushes past me. This way, she says. I almost protest, but realize a second later, She's heading in the right direction. I give her a long stare while waiting for the next car to arrive. She shrugs at me. I like codes, she says. The elevator door opens and a dozen people step out. 
some smiling, some downtrodden. Twice the amount of people, myself included, push ourselves into the large steel box. It's cramped and the air is thin. Emma and Timmy are right up against my belly. They have to bend their backs to fit in the space. When the elevator lurches upwards, the lights flicker and threaten to die, but don't. After a short ride, the door opens up again. Inside the heart of the hub, it's like a Vegas casino from the world that was. There's activity everywhere. Lights and sounds and smells. Girls in tight bodices walk around, smiling at strangers. Guys in suits that show their muscles move slowly about the crowds. And hanging from the ceiling, screens full of fast-moving codes and numbers. A stock ticker for antiques. This is the most active and colorful of all the hubs I've been to. It's like a party, where everyone is toasting the past. A funeral. Every few feet is a large oval-shaped table with four or five screens spaced judiciously apart. In the center of the oval, a stern-looking individual squints at the figures behind the screens. Overseers. They're the judges of the deals. They decide what's fair or not and finish off the deal. They always take ten percent. Emma and Timmy are frozen in place wide-eyed like children. Come on, I tell them, pushing past them. This way. Each oval is themed in a certain way. Some trade in movies, those ancient forms of entertainment that seem to fill up most people's lives. Some trade in TV, the equivalent of food for the previous generations. They gobbled up hours of the stuff every day. But the most exclusive ovals, those that interest me the most, deal in music. Music is the sound of nature as translated by the human experience. It has no equal. The music oval is off near the edge of the massive floor. The mass of crowds is thinner here, although it's still a little too busy for my tastes. I sit at an unoccupied screen, the hacker kids hanging out behind me, scoping out the area like they're my bodyguards. I pull the skull and bone stick from my jacket and insert it into one of the many hidden ports behind the screen. The overseer walks over to me. They all look so much alike, it may be a robot, but it seems like a man with a thick Texan accent. Buying or selling, he asks. Selling. He nods, presses a hidden key, and walks away. On the screen, the list of newly acquired songs scrolls by on the right side. The system checks file names versus data, verifying things like sound quality and legitimacy of titles. Slowly, the numbers appear by the song titles, going rates of songs by that artist, or time period, or genre on the global exchange. This is the waiting phase. My cash is being submitted to hundreds, if not thousands, of other consoles and other hubs, or the personal screens of rich collectors in the few remaining cities and nicer parts of the world. Near one of the titles, a small red exclamation point appears. The system has flagged the song as an N-O-H. Once, for a brief moment in time, this song was the number one hit of a world that no longer exists. Instantly, bids start to come in. I start clicking through them as fast as I can, ignoring everything except the top price, which keeps rising. I hear a grumble beside me. Look away from my work. Emma is staring at me with an angry look. You think you can do this better than me? I challenge her. I know I can. I stare at her eyes. That hungry knowledge is still back there, despite whatever my boy Bird did to her last night. Fine, I say and give her my chair. She sits down with a flourish and starts sliding her fingers across the screen like a pianist doing Mozart. 
Another red exclamation point appears near another song, and Emma is already comboing that piece with the first one. The big number at the top of the screen, my possible profit, keeps jumping by hundreds of dollars. She's ignoring the top bidders and pushing the middle ground bids to drive up the demand. Other songs, not with exclamation points, but by the same artists, are suddenly in the triple digits. If there was music in this place, I'd start dancing. I glance at the overseer, who seems very interested in Emma. He's hovering near her, one eye on her and one on his secret screen. Passers-by pause when they see the girl with the magic fingers. A few linger. I shove a few out of the way while blocking the view of others. I don't like attention, and the girl is gathering some. Even the other bidders in the oval are glancing up from their screens to peer curiously in her direction. Then I see the number at the top of her screen. More money than I've ever seen in my life. Somehow, she's taken two NOHs and a handful of obscure shit and turned it into a major score. I feel my dick getting hard and my breath tightening up. I feel proud of my decision to bring the kids to the hub and amazed at my foresight not to kill them in the fields. The overseer, perhaps tiring of Emma's cleavage or the sudden crowd, chimes in. Final bids are in. Sell or leave. Emma looks back at me. She's also breathing hard, sweat pooling around her temples and dripping down below her cheeks. I smile at her. Let it ride, baby. She slaps the screen, a big red icon that says sell in bold. There's a bit of a cheer that comes from the crowd. Even the overseer cracks a smile. Your winnings are on the way, he says, that accent morphing winnings into wanings. A couple of suit muscle heads walk over with a thick white envelope. Giddy, we walk away from the table. The kids are chatting about the bidding process, the tech, and the thrill of it. My brain is riding a million miles an hour. With this much cash, my crew can stop roaming the wilderness for antiques. We can settle down somewhere, start a local operation, start a family again, be normal. The possibilities are endless. I smile wide as I think about sharing the good news with Burr and the others. Emma, Timmy, and I wait for the elevator. Emma tugs at my arm. We did okay? She asks, sheepish grin on her pretty face. Better than okay, I say as the doors open. I let the kids in first so I can hold on to the envelope in front of me. I'm aware of others looking at me. The elevator quickly fills up. There's a lurch as it gets moving, and then another as it stops and the lights go out, this time all the way. I feel the knife enter my back and I'm about to yell when a hand clutches my open mouth. Scream, Emma says, her breath hot in my ear, and I push it all the way in. The pain is intense like a volcano inside me. It seems to quickly spread to my arms which feel useless and my legs which buckle. I can feel Timmy, thin and quick, slink to my front in the dark and grab the envelope. No, I whisper as the knife goes in further. The elevator kicks back into operation, and the lights flicker on. Somehow, Emma is in front of me, her body pushing me against the wall. There's a laugh from someone else in the elevator. I can taste blood in my mouth. Can't move or speak. The elevator stops, and the crowd pushes its way out the doors. Emma leans into me like she's going in for a kiss. Thanks for everything, baby. Before my vision disappears, I see her and Timmy rushing out towards my bike. Some dark figures appear over me. 
There's some shouting and the report of guns firing. When the darkness comes, it's like nothing I've ever heard before. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And there you go. A huge thank you to Elad. Elad, thank you so much. Oh, that is an honor to have that story. Thank you indeed. And Jonathan... What can I say? It's lovely to have you back on the mic, sir. Nice to give you a big hug there. Thank you so much. So that's this little baby put to bed, tucked up and put to bed for the week there. I hope you enjoyed it. Do think about subscribing. That would be fantastic too. Patreon or just a one-off donation. Man, that would help. Oh, yes, indeed. Until next week, just like I say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I move slow, so I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out